running in for the show. Starting! Oh! Hello from Dan O'Hagan and welcome to a very special and unique edition of Display Frequency. Though aviation plays a part in the story we'll hear today, it's not the actual focus. Instead, I've been to speak with an army veteran of World War II, Ray Griffiths, who fought with the 1st Battalion of the Herefordshire Regiment in the closing decisive months of the war in Germany. His story is fascinating. As you'll hear, we spoke for well over an hour covering, among other things, his involvement in the last major battle in Germany of the entire conflict at the Turtoburger Wald in April 1945. Our conversation begins with the outbreak of war in September 1939. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Well, Ray, first, thanks for joining us. Um, let's begin by going back to 1939 when you were 13. The war hasn't started yet. What was life like in Britain at that time? At the time, it was um, of no concern to a schoolboy. Uh, we were there, I was, had a ha happy family life. I had a brother and a sister, mother and father, and two hard-working parents. Uh, uh, eventually, whilst at school, I became head boy of the school. So that gave me a, a, quite a, a role, uh, together with all the prefects, etc. There was no real problem uh, other than there was a local youth club. Uh, it was run by Cadbury Brothers, and they directed this um, hall of which we participated in all the activities, the table tennis, the five-a-side, sorry, 25-a-side <laughs> football in the gymnasium. Uh, and eventually I transpired to be a pretty good footballer and uh, eventually I played for this square club, as it was called. And uh, I, I then the war started. How aware were you at the time that war was close or, or going to happen? None whatsoever. Really? Uh, yeah, none, no idea at all. I mean, a 13-year-old wasn't interested in the news on the radio, etc. It was our parents and our neighbours who had the biggest concern. Uh, eventually, when uh, I d joined the Salvation Army band at about 14, and I joined this band because the girls' choir <laughs> was also <laughs> at the same uh, school. So um, uh, coming home one night, I was chasing after the girls, etc., and I slipped, and this tenor horn, which I'd got under my arm, fell to the ground. As I'm going down, so it's coming back up again, and it's caught me across my eyebrow, mm -hmm. blood everywhere, and I eventually I got home. Uh, got repaired, stitched up. Uh, my father was a blacksmith and he repaired the bell of this um, tenor horn beautifully, but I never went to the band again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then uh, I had been, the day war was declared, I was sitting in our garden practicing. Um, on this tenor horn. The neighbours were out listening to how awful I was and the radio came on and this is when Neville Chamberlain uh, stated 
um, peace in our time, etc. And he waved his famous piece of paper. I, I do recall the distress that my neighbour was in, the, uh, the lady. She was in tears when she heard this because they obviously recognised the significance of it all. But me, I was nonchalant here. No problem as far as I was concerned. There was a war and it wasn't going to affect me. It was going to be over in a few months' time. And those first few years of the war when you were at home in Birmingham and around Birmingham, what did you see of, of air raids, of the war itself? Yeah. I At 14, I'd started work. Now there's an event in <laughs> <Absolutely>, itself. <yeah. laughs> Uh, and I worked for the local Birmingham Battery and Metal Company in the office. I hated it. I didn't like being in the office. But there was a restriction by the government that you couldn't leave that employment without approval. Uh, during the period of time, 14 up to 15, no problem, no problem. 15 onwards, uh, whilst at work, we did fire watching, for which you got paid five shillings a night. Well, I used to do three nights. <laughs> Fifteen shilling was a fortune. <laughs> um, but then I managed to leave that particular uh, organisation and joined an electrical contracting company, um, which I enjoyed really so. Whilst doing that, I was around the various establishments who were preparing for the war effort. And I recall having to go and work uh, at, as an electrician's mate at Fisher and Ludlow, where the Lancasters were being assembled and painted. And I was involved with the spray booths and the electrical installation on the spray booths. But from there on was it just progress, as, as I said uh, um, earlier on, we witnessed Coventry, the blitz on Coventry and the blitz on Birmingham, the barrage balloons above us, uh, the anti-aircraft guns and the rockets etc in the local park and uh, the area which is now the uh, the local golf club. Uh, it was um, a bit horrific with the air raids but we were the, on the outskirts of Birmingham, so we didn't get the full brunt of all the problems uh, that they had in the city centre. Fire watching was an event. If you weren't fire watching, you were at home and you were looking out for incendiary bombs and you had the bucket with the stirrup pump and the sandbags and hoped that you could put this sandbag on top of the incendiary bomb before it um, created too much damage. The part you couldn't get into, of course, was roofs. Mm -hmm. if, a, if an incendiary bomb had smashed the tile and gone through to the ceiling below, it was on fire and the, the house was on fire. We had several events like that. With air raids, was there a sense among the people of, of panic or was it calm, was, was it stoic? I think initially you wondered what the air, rides, air raid sirens were sounding for. You couldn't hear anything, no aircraft up above, etc. But it was just a foretaste of what was to come. Uh, you didn't have any warning of um, aircraft flying overhead. You could always tell the difference between a German bomber with its diesel engines, etc., uh, compared with the British. Although you never or very rarely saw or heard British aircraft. The barrage balloons, uh, for instance, were on the outskirts of the cities to keep the, air, the German aircraft lower. Upon that, uh, we had a lightning strike and the balloon that was in the local park suddenly came adrift and on fire and you saw it drifting, oh it was a beautiful sight, <laughs> quite exciting. You're hoping that it's not going to fall on your house. But it did, it fell on somebody's house mm. and the uh, fire brigade had to come and quickly uh, put, it put it out, etc. That was the little kind of adventures and events that 
a 15, 16 year old had. The war progressed. Uh, Germans had invaded uh, Holland and Belgium and gone through into France etc. But again we were little aware of that. Remember that it was only radio or newspapers. So when does the call come for the army? Uh, with my birthday cards. But just prior to that, can I just tell you that at 16 I joined the Air Training Corps. And that was one of the biggest adventures of my life. In that, those early days, we were taken away over a week, long weekend to airfields in Lincoln where we had flights, circuits and bumps, Anson, Dakota, Wellington, Lancaster. Those are the four that I uh, had flights in. And all it was, uh, you hung around the airfield and uh, suddenly that some of the aircrew came out, can we come with you? Yes, go on, two of you. Right, so two of us go. We would have to collect a harness and a parachute, put the harness on. Now, the, it was quite hilarious when the wafts <laughs> went past you and you had this harness on, which had actually pulled your trousers up <laughs> to half-mast. <laughs> and so there you are walking around the airfield with the trousers about nine inches off the ground. And uh, that was quite fun. Into a, an anthem absolutely bare of any in yeah. um, interior so you could see all the wires going back to the to the tail etc and seeing them move it uh, but they were generally Canadian crews and of course there was the chewing gum that was quite an event because of the sweet rationing in the in those days so we had these flights and I loved it I absolutely loved it so it's 17 and a quarter two colleagues from the Air Training Corps and I volunteered for the Air Force. We were uh, asked to go to Viceroy Close on the Bristol Road in Birmingham where the RAF had taken over this block of flats. Report there, take the written exam. Oh, by the way, we're there in our uniforms, bright as buttons, etc. dead keen. <laughs> Take the written exam, wait for the result to be uh, uh, accounted on that, get in front of this big selection board Well, you've never seen so much scrambled eggs on hats and arms and etc. Top brass they were. And each one of us, we were told, we will accept you as pilot navigators providing you pass your medical. Well, there we are, three young 16 or so, 17 year olds, etc. Uh, footballers, cricketers, runners, you name it, fit as fiddles. We went and sat outside one of the rooms. Cyril, one of the lads, went in first, came out. He said, I'm going to room 41. Albert went in next. He comes out. I'm going to room 32. I go in next, so I'm taking the eye test. Colourblind. Go to room 32. So out of the three of us, two of us were colourblind. Mm. Cyril eventually went to Canada, and got called up and went to Canada and was doing his solo flying. But Muggins, <laughs> uh, go home and wait for your call up. And I only reminisced the other day w with Emily when we were in Birmingham that th we passed the Odeon Cinema in New Street in Birmingham. And I said, that's where, on the evening of the disappointment of learning that I couldn't get in the REF, we all went to see Wuthering Heights with Lawrence Olivia, the most boring situation you could ever face, having had the most disappointing um, news in your life so wait for your call up 
and there I had my call of, at 18. My paper came with my birthday cards. I opened up the brown envelope. It had got OHMS on it. Now that's ohms. Now, being an electrician, of course, yeah, wasn't anything significant other than ohms. Raymond, this is a message from King George the Sixth. <laughs> we want you to report to Norton Barracks at Worcester on the seventeenth of August, a short while after my eighteenth birthday, and off I went. So, when those papers come. What's the initial reaction from you and from your family? I don't know what the reaction was to my family because they never expressed, oh, we don't want you to go or, uh, oh, you won't like it and, oh, the war's on and uh, you might get killed, etc. Nothing like that at all. Um, I think my parents just accepted it that they knew that at 18 I would be going the progress of the war had gone on quite well from August 1944. This is all post the invasion, post D-Day, yes. isn't it? Yeah, I was lucky. Lucky my birthday was the 2nd of August 1926. Had I been six months older, I would have then been in the uh, D-Day, etc. And all that had gone on in that period of time. June 6, 1944, and the greatest armada in military history is assembled in England for an assault on Hitler's fortress Europe. For this long-awaited D-Day, the Allies have assembled 12,000 planes to protect a surface force of 4,000 ships, all under the supreme command of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who has British General Montgomery at his side. The Allied forces have nearly 3 million troops trained for the assault, and British and U.S. planes bomb the French coast around the clock dropping 9,000 tons of explosives during a few hours before the landing. So I got to Norton Barracks and we were met by the, uh, at Forgot Street, sorry, uh, off the train, uh, by the biggest regimental sergeant major you have ever met. Red-nosed, red-cheeked, red outfit, <laughs> red uniform, cane under his arm. Are you gentlemen for Norton Barracks? That was the first time we, and only time I was ever called a gentleman. <laughs> uh, and on we went. I then met two lads, non-smokers, non-drinkers like myself. And uh, we became friends. And numbers, when we were registered, Cedric was, uh, no, Tom was the lower number. Tom Freeman, one four eight two 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 two, all the twos Freeman. I was next, one four eight two 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 three one, and Cedric was next, one four eight two 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 four two, which meant that alphabetically there was an F, a G, and an H, mm. so we we're always generally together. together. No matter what happened, uh, we were together, and we did our training. Norton Barracks and then down in Abergavenny at Crickhall and had some embarkation leave and were sent straight over to France. Within a week of travelling around France trying to catch up with the Allies who'd got to the Rhine, we were then dispatched to the Herefordshire Regiment who were stationed at rest at a little place called Hacked. Uh, northeast of Brussels. We joined the regiment and as real raw rookies, virgin soldiers if you'd like. <laughs> but upon that we went to we were instructed to go to C Company, at C Company to fifteen platoon. At fifteen platoon we were split up for the first time. And fate takes a hand. We were lined up, three of us together, and an arm from the corporal comes between us and sent Cedric one way and Tom and I another way. Uh, we didn't know how fate would occur with that respect, but uh, it had a great bearing on our lives. Because later on, 
Cedric was the one who was killed. The 11th Armoured Division, of which the Herefordshire Regiment were part, were held in uh, uh, held back, ready for the crossing of the Rhine. And when the occasion arose uh, for the prepara uh, preparations for crossing the Rhine, was such that the Sixth Airborne flew over and landed the other side of the Rhine and prepared the ground ready for the armour to come across these hastily made bridges. These guys have flown in on gliders, haven't they? Yes. That was a sight, sight to behold. The sky was filled with aircraft. Dakotas, all towing gliders, Spitfires up above them, etc., protecting them. A phenomenal sight. When that had finished, uh, we were ready to go to cross the Rhine and not become liberators in any shape or form as they uh, as our forces as the allies had been uh, pri prior to that because they were liberators going through france belgium and holland they were liberators going into germany we were attackers the liberators were getting all the uh, the wine the flowers the kisses <laughs> We missed all that. It really was a shame. <laughs> How much training have you had or what kind of training have you had before you went into combat? We have always recognised that our training was how to fire a rifle, how to fire a brain gun, how to throw a hand grenade. Very, very limited because they wanted reinforcements over into uh, France to take the place of all the casualties that, casualties that had occurred uh, on the Allies' advancement. We always considered it was uh, limited. Running and jumping and uh, the, the, the keeping fit part was the essence of it all. We'd do route marches, we'd do cross-country running, everything to get one fit. And really we were, we were fit as fiddles. And then after the training, I think we had 12 weeks in Orton Barracks and six weeks uh, at Abergavenny killing sheep and, uh, and running up and down the Brecon Hills. Then that was the, uh, that's 18 weeks of training. I didn't know how to get on a tank I didn't know what a tank looked like other than the one we fired the Piat, the Piat Personnel Infantry Anti-Tank. It, it lobbed a bomb. It, the whole thing was a, a spring-loaded uh, weapon. If you were small, you had to put the, your feet astride the shoulder pad and, and pull this damn great spring until it clicked. Now. If you were tall, not too no bad. Problem, yeah. yeah. Small, you really struggled. That was the, the world's worst weapon. It had a, a carrying case, I think, of three bombs, but I'm not quite sure. But you had to take it in turns to carry that piat uh, in all your uh, route marches and uh, training, etc. We hated it. Um, when we'd finished our training, we were given embarkation leave, two weeks, then back to uh, back to Norton Barracks, dispatched down to a, uh, to Dover, and I'm at a, boarded a minesweeper, and off we went. And when you, if you've never been on the sea before, as we hadn't. Uh, it's quite an adventure until somebody started talking about mines uh, so you look back and there you could see the White Cliffs of Dover and you wondered whether you'd ever see the White Cliffs of Dover again however we arrive at France at the transit camp and transported off to join the Herefordshire Regiment 
a frontline infantry regiment. So straight from training, we'd become frontline infantry. So you had to learn quick? You did. You learned from the old soldiers, those who had already suffered the, um, uh, the, the fighting across France, Belgium and Holland. So Ray, you're 18 and you're about to engage the enemy for the first time. Yep. What's that like when you first see the enemy? Um, we didn't see many enemy. Uh, having crossed the Rhine, which I may add was in the uh, night time when tracer shells were flying over the top of our heads. Uh, we were going across this pontoon bridge which was swaying it was only held in by little pontoon boats underneath it etc and still wires holding it back but there was a big curve in it I have a picture of um, that pontoon bridge which was done by an artist there weren't many cameramen following up or with us at, uh, the British Army has very little record uh, by cameramen Americans Yes, they must have had dozens of cameramen following them. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they get across this bridge, muck and bullets everywhere, and uh, the Germans, of course, were retreating. There was so much armour getting across, both British and American, Canadian, uh, across this, the, the Rhine. We were very lucky that the 6th Airborne had made a very very good effort and captured Vaisal which is where we crossed. Mm -hmm. Vaisal was flat, nothing but rubble so that meant the Germans had disappeared out of it and so in a sense we chased across Germany uh, and I think it took two months just over two months from that crossing of the Rhine to the end of the war you very rarely saw Germans other than prisoners and towards the latter part of the war thousands thousands upon thousands of German prisoners uh, so fighting them uh, I probably had to fire my rifle etc no more than half a dozen times it was mainly shepherding prisoners further back etc. The armour the tanks had done most of the um, damage and, uh, and the, the hard work the infantry was simply supporting we had several skirmishes um, Germany is bisected by rivers and canals that is the most difficult task for an armoured division the support they had from our engineers was absolutely magnificent. The moment you came to a river, uh, uh, you crossed the river in small boats, put a defensive line, the engineers would come up and then erect a bailey bridge. Over you would go and on you would go. You can imagine trying to move uh, an armoured division like that a tremendous effort plus the fact that the 11th armoured were um, uh, Montgomery decided the 11th armoured would be the advance armoured division they would then be followed by the 7th armoured division the desert rats and so 11th armoured went across 7th armoured coming along behind them we get to the very first major river uh, the river Ems there's one bridge over there intact. Over go the 11th Armoured. Back come all their vehicles that are coming to collect ammunition and petrol, etc. Who are in turn clashing with the 7th Armoured who are coming wanting to cross over the bridge. Imagine the chaos of that. I, if you've ever seen the, um, the, the bridge at Worcester yeah. in the, uh, uh, on a busy evening, etc traffic on their backwards and forwards etc imagine that as an armoured army unit two armoured divisions remarkable this now is what April 45 almost uh, was there a sense at this point that the war was being won that the Germans were 
on the back foot. No. No. They were forming defensive lines. On April the 1st, we came upon the Teutoburg of Ald, a forest which is about 25 yard, uh, miles long. It's quite, no, no, it's only about three quarters of a mile wide, but it stretches up about 300 to 400 feet. It's bisected with caves, dense population, dense trees, etc., and a ridge that runs right across the top of it. In peace times, the Germans, it was a, a, a beauty spot, as far as the Germans are concerned. It was partly circled by the Dortmund Ems Canal. Now, the Dortmund Ems Canal had taken a pasting from the RAF, and they damaged it so much that the water had disappeared out of this canal. Now the canal there is nothing like our little canals where we get one small barge through it, um, along it. It's about 30 metres wide. So you can imagine a canal devoid of its water, about 10 feet deep. It's the most magnificent moat you could ever imagine. And what was a moat for? as a defensive line around the castle. Upon that, the Herefords, our regiment, had to cross and form a bridgehead over this canal. The bridge that we crossed by had been blown up. In fact, there were seven bridges in this area all over the canal, which were blown up. We got to this one point, and we, uh, the Herefords which included Tom, Cedric and myself, crossed over, formed the bridgehead. The engineers came along, put a, a Bailey bridge across, which enabled the tanks to come across. They supported us, so we consolidated there. A, a couple of patrols went out, uh, and it was thought that, oh, there's only about 250 Germans there. They're up on the top of the ridge there. We'll cope. But we found that there was only one road through the forest. Mm -hmm. And we were near that road. Unfortunately, uh, it was discovered later on that there were 3,000 Germans on the top of this ridge. They'd only just got there. They'd only got there about t 10 hours before we arrived. So they'd had time to form this defensive line. Now, the Teutoburg of Auld is steeped in German history. In 9 AD, the Germanic tribes annihilated, I think it was three Roman legions, and all their camp followers and all their slaves killed everyone. Uh, had we known that, <laughs> <laughs> as we were looking up at this forest, and wondering what to do next, uh, we would a bit be a bit hesitant. Our A company sent a um, a patrol up into the forest, etc. And they suddenly got caught by these Germans who were in defensive positions. Now, to try and get into a forest and walk through a forest. Uh, British soldier typically he'd want to walk up the pathways yeah. the bridle paths or the footpaths etc no problem but of course the Germans were at the other end of the paths so you suddenly get scattered into the forest itself where it's branches of trees tree trunks brambles heather you name it how do you walk through that how do you fight anybody trying to watch where your feet are going and trying to find the Germans on the top. Our A company had 21 killed and several wounded. One of the wounded happened to be one of my old school pals who played in the same football team that I did and he was hit on the head uh, or on his helmet and the bullet rattled through his helmet banged his head, knocked him out. 
we sprawled out in the, in this heather and the, the brambles etc but it recovered and managed to get back we were the, or they they were liberated in a sense the survivors were liberated by the uh, a major tapper who uh, gave the instruction get back very rare <laughs> that you heard anybody say get back quick <laughs> Uh, and so they got back and recovered. By then we knew uh, that the rest of it was going to be a problem. Alongside the Herefordshire Regiment in the 11th Armoured Division was the 3rd Monmouthshire Regiment. They were a little further back from where we were. They'd crossed the same bridge that, uh, that the tanks had come across, etc. And they'd formed their bridgehead they were then instructed to go up into the forest uh, and try and clear these germans that had caused a problem with the herefords so they went up into the forest and they got ambushed ambushed uh, they suddenly came upon a quarry and uh, some of them some of the mons were down in the quarry others had gone up onto the top horrific it was there that one of their corporals Corporal Chapman liberated or rescued his wounded company commander for which he earned the Victoria Cross and one of our local lads here at Lye he was supporting the corporal but unfortunately uh, a lad Jack Southall was killed now that created for us a big adventure because we've managed with all our uh, research to find his daughter and we've taken her back to Germany to show where her father was killed and where he was first buried mm. so the Teutoburger Wald gave us a great amount of problems we've met a Dr Wolf Berlin who fought against us we've met several other Germans who'd fought against us. We found the German cemeteries of all the German casualties, all in the forest. But then, uh, eventually, we had to move on because the 7th Armoured by then had caught up with us. Mm. So they took over the final liberation of the, the, the big town was called Ibn Buren. And they eventually captured Ibn Buren not without an awful lot of casualties but we then carried on towards Osnabrück uh, Osnabrück circled Hanover and crossed several other small rivers upon that shortly after that after several small um, battles or skirmishes that were more or less not a, not a major battle uh, not digging in and firing off at slit trench and um, been there for a few days it was all move on move on until we came upon Belsen I have just returned from the Belsen concentration camp where for two hours I drove slowly about the place in a jeep with the chief doctor of second army I had waited a day before going to the camp so that I could be absolutely sure of the facts now available I find it hard to describe adequately the horrible things that I've seen and heard. But here, unadorned, are the facts. There are 40,000 men, women and children in the camp. German and half a dozen other nationalities, thousands of them Jews. Of this total of 40,000, 4,250 are acutely ill or dying of virulent disease. Typhus typhoid, diphtheria, dysentery, pneumonia, and childbirth fever are rife. 25,600, three-quarters of them women, are either ill from lack of food or are actually dying of starvation. In the last few months alone, 30,000 prisoners have been killed off or allowed to die. And at Belsen, we were fortunate the third Monmouthshire at the Teutoburg Wald that had so many casualties that they were taken out of being a front line unit and they were taken over by the Cheshire Regiment. 
the Cheshire Regiment then had to catch up with us and they were then put into the front as the spearhead because they'd done very little on the way up. They were put in the front and it was this German uh, medical and military personnel who met up with the Cheshires and said there is a camp a little further on which is um, where typhus is, typhus is prevalent and don't go in and don't let the um, inmates out. If they get out, they will spread typhus all over the, the area, etc. Cause a disaster. So, because of that, we were then uh, taken to a farm where a big drum of DDT powder was issued and we had to douse ourselves in DDT powder everywhere, every nook and cranny all your through your uniform, your pockets, in your hair, in your helmet, you name it. And I've always jokingly said we looked like the flower grade men <laughs> of home pride <laughs> that used to come onto the mm. television. We literally did look like that. Luckily, through all the negotiations, etc., that went on, we weren't needed to go into Belson. So we we carried on. And we carried on and went up into the Schleswig-Holstein area. And the war ended May the 3rd, as far as we were concerned. That's, that's when we knew the Germans had surrendered. Uh, the war ended officially May the 7th or 8th. And we were still. We, we then moved up to Flensburg, a big seaport, and occupied a German military barracks cavalry barracks on the top of a hill and there we came to rest and it was peacetime. You mentioned Belson, how aware were you at the time of Belson, from what we know now, how mm. aware were you then of what was going on? Nothing at all, nothing at all. We'd liberated uh, prisoner of war camps, I mean that was interesting and exciting because when you see the, um, the pleasure that was on the faces of the RAF lads and some of the army lads who'd been captured, remember they'd been captured since um, some of them had been captured at Dunkirk. So they'd been five years. In Carp oh, yeah. Uh, RAF lads had been shot down in the early days of the war. They were in yeah, these prisons. Yes. But the other thing was the liberation of the uh, uh, forced labour. So you get Lithuanians, Poles. Belgians, Dutch, all, licorice, all sorts of um, nationalities, all coming out of these factories, the camps, etc. That was uh, something to see. But eventually, uh, we lost another another colleague uh, a bit later on, um, right near the end of the war, just a few days before the end of the war. Um, so we remember them. What I've forgotten to tell you is how Cedric was killed. We got to the River Vaser. C Company were delegated to cross the River Vaser in small rubber boats, four paddles between eight. <laughs> so it was the entrenching tool or the butt of your rifle get across this river as quickly as you possibly can and we formed a bridgehead formed the bridgehead then we've got to do some patrols to find out who's who's in front of us what's there uh, Cedric was in his one section sorry two section and said Tom and I were in number one section one section went along the road that led away from the ferry crossing two section went through an orchard and we were fired on. The bulk of the firing went to Cedric's uh, position and that's when Cedric was killed. Four others were wounded. The section commander was wounded but died of his wounds later on. And another lad from a D company, he was killed. Now it's, um, it's usually reported on a diary like that. Here we have the diary here. Yeah. And upon that, it shows you just what happened, the enemy infiltrated, etc. 
and the Hedifords casualties for the day, two killed and five wounded. Five wounded. Um, then it was decided that we would carry on and disappear. But that's the kind of war diary that um, was written every night by the uh, commanding officer. He'd scribble it um, on, on a pad and his clerk would then type it a few days later when they were at rest, etc. Um, the one that was of the 3rd Monmouthshire Regiment is horrific because it shows how many officers were killed or, or wounded. And the 3rd Monmouthshire in their attack lost, uh, I would say, 95% of their officers. We learned later on from our German colleagues that all the officers and the sergeants were the first ones to be fired upon so that the rest of them were orderless yeah, um, had no leadership no leadership whatsoever um, but with the, the bullets that Tom, uh, Tom and I dodged were because we were in a ditch now by a, I've forgotten to mention that and through all this story, the amount of coincidences that occur are, are absolutely tremendous. But we had the coincidence of being advised by uh, a Dutch lad that he knew of a German guy who'd written a book about the River Weser, which is where, and the battle ar ar around there, which is where Cedric was killed. Well, I contacted this ge a German guy, and he was a colonel. Uh, colonel in the German army, not during the war, but he'd written this book. Contacting him, he sent me a copy of his book. Which we have here. Yeah. And in it, it's all in German. Yeah. And in it, on page 317, is Cedric George Holnall, age 18, of Lye, Starbridge, Worcestershire. How can you credit that suddenly in a, a German book, of which the guy, we'd never met him before, mm. didn't know of him, is Cedric's name. So we've been in contact with him further and he sent us photographs of the area, he sent us photographs of the or where the orchard was, the orchard isn't there now because they had some flooding from the river and it killed all the cherry trees. So when he's photographed of it, it's just a field leading up to the farmhouse from which the firing had come. He's photographed the ditch where Tom and I scuttled. <laughs> um, it's remarkable, absolutely staggering. At the River Vaser, a lot of our engineers were killed whilst they were trying to build a bridge across the river. They were attacked regularly by German fighter bombers whilst building this bridge. We now realise from the information that we've had through this book that there was an airfield no more than 30 meters, uh, 30 miles away. Mm. So it was a shuttle service. Load up, bomb the bridge. Back again, refuel. Back again, refuel. Yeah. Ah, uh, I've forgotten. I've forgotten the aircraft that was uh, tornado, not tornado. Was it the jet, the uh, ME two six two? No. Oh, yes. Uh, and the ME one oh nines, Stukas, all sorts. It really was a, um, a variety of aircraft that were attacking them. And he has sent me a DVD of the airfield and its damage that, that had been caused by the capture. And on this DVD, there is a long line of tanks and Brengon carriers. And on one of the Brengon carriers is the symbol of the 11th Armoured Division, the charging bull, the black bull. So all the the coincidence of all that. So, after the war, um, 
I'd been trying to do a lot of research on trying to find where Cedric was finally buried. He was buried on the bank of the River Vaser, and we left and carried on and the, the war ended. He was killed on April the 6th. Now that's not far off the end of the war. So I was trying to research to see where he was finally buried. And Emily said to me one day, there's an exhibition of the internet and by the BBC and BT at the Gas Hall in Birmingham. Do you want to go? Yeah, okay. Get there, and in the Gas Hall, a series of laptops, computers, etc., with um, children teaching the grandparents how to <laughs> use them. <laughs> and uh, we'd seen enough, we'd listened to Jon Snow, who was doing the, 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 the program, and get to the last but one. Uh, computer setup, and on it was the Com Commonwealth War Graves Commission website. Website. I say to the guy who was operating it, "Would you be good enough to show me how to do that? I might be able to find Cedric." Mm -hmm. Who do you want? He said. I said uh, Cedric George Holmore, one four eight two 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 four two, killed Herefordshire Regiment killed on the 6th of April. Types is in, and up it comes. Cedric George Holdenall, Hanover War Cemetery. I'd found him. While I'm being consoled by the wife, this gentleman turns around and says, um, the Herefordshire Regiment, were you at the Battle of the Teutoburg of Old? Yes. He said, what company? C Company. He said, my brother-in-law, Billy Smith, was in A Company and he was killed on the 6th of April, uh, on the 1st of April at the Teutoburg of Ald. Unbelievable. Yeah. And what are the odds of that? Oh, lovely. So we became firm friends, contact, through our correspondence and from our information that he'd been researching and that which I'd been researching we put them both together we got a quite a nice little record and so we started to compile the story of it all then we decided that we would go to Germany and show Brian Brian Paul um, where his brother-in-law had been killed and we would carry on then to Hanover to Cedric's grave wonderful remarkable a wonderful group of people. Remarkable too was during the battle at the Wald, there was a truce, wasn't there? Yes. Yes, there was. What happened there? The Germans were, were dug in. They were attacked by the Third Mons. And there were so many casualties, killed and wounded. I think the third Mons had 40 killed, but a great number wounded. S so too the Germans had had casualties and wounded. Scattered strategically around this part of the uh, ridge of the forest. And of course some of them were lying there in the undergrowth. Others had managed to get scrambling down the pathway, et cetera, pathways, etc. But one of the young Germans, and they were actually officer cadets from the uh, a school that was like our Sandhurst. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, he was able to speak English. And he conversed with one of the Third Mons men whom they captured and made prisoner. And had said, something ought to be done about the wounded. You can hear them mm. crying for help. Can we go down to your headquarters, which is at the bottom of the forest, near the canal bridge? Can we go there and ask if we can have a truce? Yep. So they went down there, a uh, white flag, a white handkerchief on a, on a rifle, and went down the pathways and eventually arrived at the HQ of the Third Mons. There, luckily, the commanding officer said yes. 
I mean, he could have said, no, stop this for a game. Mm. I've got no one, no one to, to, to go up there. All my men are probably dead or wounded on the, in the forest, etc. I'm not going to risk it. But he didn't. Yeah. So the anti-tank men, for instance, who were still down by the bridge, uh, the, the other support groups, etc., the mortar platoon, etc., um, they were there. So they all then went up with the medical staff into the forest and collected as many of the wounded as they possibly could find. Now that must have been the most difficult task. Mm. You can imagine somebody wounded and he didn't want to be wounded or hurt, killed anymore and he'd bury himself in the undergrowth to conceal himself. Mm. I don't want to be fired on again. Uh, so it would terribly difficult to find them. However, they did the best they could and they got, a, got a, everybody back. Germans as well to our first aid post. Of course the ambulances then come up over the bridge and start taking them away. Those that had been killed were collected later. Upon that, the young German lad went back up to his um, commanding officer and the fighting started again, hammering and banging away until they all surrendered, until they surrendered or gradually eased away and disappeared up towards Ibn Buren, where some of them got caught by the next attack from the um, from the 11th Armoured, sorry, 7th Armoured. But that was a another horrific setup where, regrettably, y you hear of friendly fire now, but friendly fire occurred with the King's Own Scottish Borderers who were making the next attack. And where were you when you heard the war was finished, over? Uh, Schleswig-Holstein, Bad Sigeberg. And what, I mean, that must have been just a day you would never forget. Uh, really nothing happened <laughs> other than the regimental sergeant major decided that he would have a little fireworks display on the evening. Uh, so he gets out all the, the flares and a mortar and his fire and the, 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 the very pistol, I think mm. it was called. Yeah. So the next thing we know, the, the RSM's firing flares up into the sky and it's a, a ball of light and it's floating down gently or the fairy pistol that's a red one that's a green one <laughs> uh, and, and that was that was a celebration it was a I don't know how to describe that now it was um, at, at, at the end of a, of a show that you haven't enjoyed very strange very odd feeling yes moment. yes uh, what are we going to do next? And what did you do next? Uh, moved on until we got to this um, barracks in Flensburg. And there we had quite some time. Um, parades, <laughs> as usual. But we were able to have football, cricket, etc. And um, then it was um, demob. Demob. Come home. Welcomed home. Emily had waited patiently for me from the days I'd gone into the forces and um, yeah we were married shortly afterwards. So when you look back now what do you take most from those months fighting in Germany? First of all the comradeship of the two lads that's Cedric and Tom. That, that comradeship stands you in extremely good stead. Uh, to the poor training. I didn't know how to um, lift a German mine. I didn't know what a German shoe mine was, which was a little metal, a uh, little wooden box. Mm. Um, hadn't the faintest idea. I initially didn't know what the uniform of a German soldier was like. 
had to differentiate between an infantryman and a tankman, etc. Mm. Nothing like that. Um, that was th the poorest part of the whole experience. Uh, that was the training, the, the limited, and firing that bloody pit. <laughs> yes, you if, you if you lay down prone uh, um, to fire the pit, uh, you had to make sure that your private parts were oh. in the right place. <laughs> Because it, it would knock you backwards about yeah. three or four feet. Uh, all manner of. Uh, um, that, that was uh, the worst part, I think, was the training. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed life in the forces. I, uh, having gone into the Air Training Corps and first experienced discipline in my life uh, collectively with others, uh, I, was, I was ready for it when I went into the Army, so I accepted it accepted the army quite readily. I was smart. I was more often than not when s uh, uh, selected for guard duty, was chosen as a stick man. That was the one who didn't have to do the two on, four off, mm -hmm. two on, four off uh, on guard. He would be in the guard room and then in the HQ offices the next morning running the errands and the messages, etc. I do remember an incident uh, when we were at Wuppertal uh, in the Ruhr. Uh, I was stick man and uh, I'd got to take a message to one of the uh, company commanders. Use the office bike. Oh, great. <laughs> Used to have a, have a ride on the bike. And I'm riding along merrily, not a care in the world. What the devil are all these bloody motors coming on the wrong side of the road? And it's me on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was uh, an enjoyable part of my army life. That. As a final thought, how did the war change you? Smarter. Um, able to look after myself. Clean my own shoes, press my own trousers, etc. Until I got married, <laughs> um, yeah, but it was one of those uh, situations where you grow up, you grow up quite quickly. Because I was as naive as a plank at eighteen. Uh, nothing had ever worried me. I'd um, I got a nice little part-time job whilst at school. Um, I enjoyed life. Yeah, it was other people that were disturbing it. <laughs> Married life has suited me as well. I've got a most wonderful wife. Oh, a wonderful wife, yeah. Thoughtful and caring, etc. But the, the history of it all, uh, one is endeavouring to, um, to show people how a young man like myself coped in the war years. I do talks now, uh, relating, as I've just related uh, briefly to yourself how things were. Uh, I managed to get from the lottery fund some monies for a laptop and a projector and now I now just go out to schools, ladies, gentlemen's clubs and etc, historic uh, clubs and spread the word because very few people will learn of this in a few years time when all the veterans, what I call the old veterans, the old veterans who suffered North Africa, most of those have gone. Uh, Dunkirk, most of those have gone. D-Day, few left, they're still telling the story. The ones who can tell the story are basically the Air Force lads those who survive. We met in Holland, the one lad, um, um, was a warrant officer, air gunner, 60 trips, got the DFC, mm. that's rare. So all those are just able to tell the story. I'm one of the young veterans and I'm 87 now and we'll 
hope still to be able to tell anybody who's interested what World War Two was like from the day I joined it. <laughs> mm. Yeah, uh, at eighteen. 1944. Well, Ray, thank you for your time. Uh, oh, it's really a pleasure. Incredible yeah. story. I'm grateful that there are young men like yourself <laughs> <laughs> who are interested. Well, it's just yeah. great to hear it, as you say, firsthand, and uh, really appreciate your time. And thank you very much. And thank you for what you did as well. Uh, it's kind of you. Thank you. Very kind of you.